Hi, everyone. I'm John Strasner. And I'm Berta Alexander. And this is Break Some Dishes, an Imagine a Place production. We're here because we realize that sometimes to get something done, you've got to start by breaking stuff up. We talk with scientists, artists, activists, educators, adventurers, and of course, designers who are doing incredible things to save our planet. Verda is a designer and I'm a talker. So we want to share these amazing conversations with you in the hopes that you'll be as inspired and excited by them as we are. And you'll start breaking some dishes of your own. There's no time to lose. So welcome to Break Some Dishes. How's it going? Roberta, I'm doing great. Wow, you're jumping right into there. I wasn't ready there. I, oh. now, let, let me let me get settled into my seat you, here. You press record and oh. our guest is here. Well, I <laughs> pressed record just in case I can catch somebody saying something inappropriate, then we know we oh, have it you know, recorded. Well, Verda, <laughs> I'm doing great, man. How are you doing? It's always I'm- good to see you. I'm doing pretty well. It's a beautiful We're, day out here in sunny California. Oh, well, good. That's great yeah. to hear because it's really freaking cold here in the Northeast. So oh, no. I'm glad that things are going well for you. on the. And I believe our guest, well, I know our guest, Brandy, is here in California as well. Brandy, how do you say your last name? Susowitz? Is that right? Susowitz. Susowitz. Okay, lovely. Oh. And she's with a new company called Receipt that she's going to tell us all about. And uh, really looking forward to this conversation because I am in the world of office design, as many of you listeners know, and we create a lot of waste, a lot of waste that is not just the construction materials in a building, but the furniture that's in the building. And John, can I tell the story once again about my favorite issue, Metropolis Magazine in the December issue of 2020 kind of did a bit of an expose on the interior design industry because we've always thought that architecture, the architecture of a building, like the materials of a building were the biggest source of embodied carbon. But it turns out because designers, interior designers work in the interior space, that's constantly getting remodeled, right? A lot of leases for work, workplace leases are three to five years long. And so there's this constant turnover and we really need to start addressing that turnover because it turns out if you look at the lifetime of a building, that potential for carbon emissions, uh, embodied carbon is can be even much greater than the building itself. And I'm sure Brandy has some startling statistics of how much furniture goes. Sobering, <laughs> I'm sure. Yes. We're going we're going to start out with the doom and gloom. And we're going to bring the listener down into the deepest, darkest pits of despair. We're going to dash their hopes for environmental change on the rocky shoals of despair. But then Brandy <laughs> is going to pick us up and bring us home. Right, Brandy? All right. I'm sure on you, man. That. Yeah. It's a big undertaking, but somebody's got to do it, I guess. Yeah. So I honestly, I really had no idea how bad the office furniture industry was as far as waste. I've been in the office furniture industry for over 20 years in the San Francisco Bay Area and working for various different dealerships in a new business development role. So 
when, when I would get a call from a client, I would go out and start talking to them about their new furniture requirements that they would need for the building that they were moving into, which was typically about nine to 12 months in the future. And I'm talking to them about their new furniture purchases, but they're, you know, they've also got a building worth of furniture that they're sitting on. And pretty much like clockwork, the way it would go is we would place the order for the new furniture. And then about four to six weeks before the customer needed to vacate the building, they would contact me kind of in a frenzy saying, you know, please help. Do you have anybody that you can refer us to, to talk to about this furniture that we need to get rid of and find a home for? And it kind of drove me crazy because no, it's not like you're just selling a sofa out of your home and plugging it into somebody else's home, right? It's a We're talking about a building worth of office furniture. And so in order to really successfully market it and sell it and plug it into another project, you really need time. So, so I had- why? So why? Let's explain that a little bit. It, it yeah. isn't just like putting a couch on Facebook marketplace and right. seeing who wants it. It's right. logistically, it's a pretty big deal. It's a big deal. So the thing, the problem is, you know, a lot of companies will come to us and want to liquidate their furniture, but they've only got four to six weeks and they could have brand new, doesn't matter, Herman Miller, Noel, you know, if you don't have the time to market the furniture, it's going to be a liability and it's going to well, end up in landfill. Do they want to give it away or do they want to sell it? Like what most is the their times, most of the time, yeah, they'll give it away, they'll donate it. But I really didn't understand how big the problem was until March of 2020 when my husband and I were um laid off due to, you know, the pandemic. And I went through some, you know, about three weeks of depression in bed because I literally didn't know where this business, this industry was going. And so obviously, like many people in the world, I was kind of like, holy crap, what's what's happening? So it was a really scary time. But one day I woke up and I started to think about all the office furniture that's out there. And I already kind of knew that the system was broken when it comes to used furniture. And so then I started to do research. And the first thing that I tried to do was I tried to find a site online that was a used office furniture site that allowed you to buy or sell your items with add to cart checkout delivery and installation. And it didn't exist. Well, used furniture kind of has a bad rap. I mean, you don't go, you don't go to look for used furniture unless you're desperate. I mean, unfortunately, it didn't used to be that way. It really yeah, well wait, you know, we all tell people too, don't we? Oh, if you want to recruit, if you want to retain, you better have the best looking space in San Francisco. And yeah, right. You're not gonna have that if you're putting a bunch of used crap in the space, right? Yeah, and I discovered kind of inadvertently I was writing a story for Fast Company about being frugal. And it really came down yeah. to, I started, I looked back historically when we started our firm 30 years ago, we used to salvage everything that we could always. Mm -hmm. like it was the first thing we would do when we went into a space was we'd inventory everything, see what was yep. usable, 
salvageable and how we could reconfigure right. things and then go to the yeah. manufacturers and get the little parts and pieces that we were missing and then just yeah. kind of kind of clean it up yeah. and refurbish it and why did you stop what, what what changed i well in my theory is just this we this whole disposable culture you know take make waste it caught up to the to to furniture industry it's also not easy. I mean, think you just said it yourself. You guys would go in there, inventory everything. You know, it's time consuming. Yeah, it is. And and you can't take a chance either. Warranties not being honored and somebody mm-hmm. sitting in a chair that is broken, but you didn't realize it was broken and you put it in right. there and now you've got mm-hmm. a big problem with somebody getting injured. But let's right. let's back also- up a second and, and look at the problem because- I don't know what the actual number is, and I get a sneaking suspicion. It's a lot like trying to tell the world how much plastic is in the ocean. But I have read that furniture makes up about 4% of the 258 million tons of waste that's produced by Americans every year. Okay. Now, I've also read that over 80% of the furniture that we purchase eventually winds up in a landfill. Brandy's going to fact check you. That doesn't surprise <laughs> me. Well, I want Brandy to stay. I'm sure Brandy has facts too, but that yeah. doesn't surprise me when we only recycle 9% of the plastic that we consume. So why would we ever Crazy. think that we're recycling furniture any better than that? Exactly. <laughs> we can't even recycle a damn Coke bottle. Exactly. Yeah. So, so my statistics are a little bit different and yeah, there's a ton of them out there, but waste 360 did, did an article and 17 billion pounds of office furniture dumped into our landfills every year in the United States. And what that equates to, and I have the link, I can share it with everybody and the viewers if you're interested after this call, but it's actually less than 1% of all commercial furniture that's sold to these companies are getting a second life. So whatever we're doing isn't working. Yeah. And what we're doing and what we have been doing in the past is people are just reacting. They don't have a viable plan. And so, so the first thing that I did during, during lockdown and COVID was I created the site on WordPress. And this is when you were laid off. Yeah, and, yeah, and I had yeah. nothing but time on my hands. Hey, and now- there's nothing better than to be laid off in the middle of a global pandemic. I mean, <laughs> nothing spells happiness like that situation. Right? I mean, yeah, I mean, who knew? It was like I ended up with all this time on my hands, but then I was able to really focus on trying to find a solution. So the first thing that I did was finding all those statistics out. And I really wanted to understand what it translated into dollars because 17 billion pounds sounds like a lot and it is a lot, but it's literally a multi-billion dollar untapped revenue stream sitting in our landfills. And it's all just because companies don't have a proactive plan. And, And I'm not talking about old furniture that have seen better days and they probably should go to a landfill. I'm talking about quality manufactured products from commercial manufacturers that when we sell them, we're telling people that these are strong, sturdy products, commercial grade, they're going to last forever. And they really could last at at least 50, 60 years, right? Because of the way they're built. But 
they're getting just thrown away in our landfill after mm. five, 10 years when really it's extremely wasteful. So, so when I launched the website and sorry, I'm kind of skipping around, but when I launched the website, I really was able to prove the proof of concept by just with that WordPress site, I was able to use the modules and hook them up on the back end and create a site where you could add to cart, check out and get delivery and installation. And immediately got a lot of interest from Gensler's sustainability department and AECOM and Skanska. And that was really mind blowing to me because I always thought of A&D is wanting to specify and plug in the most beautiful, shiniest, brand new thing, right? But the feedback that I was getting was that they actually are very, very interested in being able to specify already existing products and plug, plugging them into their projects, but they've always been so hard to find and to locate, you know, or it's it's only available for four to six weeks and then it's gone. When we launched in October, we got some local press and that turned into, it just snowballed like, you know, business of furniture and then furniture today and then woman entrepreneur and then podcasts. And then by the fifth month, we got a call. I got a call from CNBC, an an editor at CNBC. And I didn't have any marketing dollars or a PR agent. Remember, I was taking money out of my 401k to survive. And this woman called, called me and she was interested in doing a story because she had heard about what we were doing and she thought it was pretty monumental. And so I talked to her And she ended up by releasing the story on March 14th, five months after we launched. And that really put us into another kind of atmosphere because immediately I was getting calls from venture capital people in the Bay Area, strangers reaching out, wanting to be business partners. I mean, wanting to invest, literally. It was blowing my mind. So so when we had the global press, that really kind of launched us into a new level, right? And that allowed us to get funding and a business partner. And so we were able to grow the business and then come up with a plan and hire 10 developers to help us get off of WordPress and create a custom site that also has a bunch of technology in it where we can share carbon footprint and put product holds and all that kind of a thing to make it easier for people to buy and sell. So when you say you share a carbon footprint, does that mean that if somebody is trying to measure their their carbon, they're able to actually put what they're doing with you into their carbon calculation? Anything that they're purchasing from us, we can give them the details on how much carbon they're saving. Oh, yeah. Okay. And where is the so so say this furniture from Salesforce, where does it live while it's on your site all these negotiations yeah where is it being stored or housed or kept so a perfect example would be let's just use oracle for an example so they've purchased a bunch of furniture from one workplace many different manufacturers and at the time of purchase they'll receive a receipt id second life cycle passport it's got everything in the cloud that's related to that order They can have multiple different locations in there 
all across the nation, you know, whatever they want to add in there. And it's basically, we take the SIF file, the SIF file from the dealer. That's the same file they use to place the orders with the manufacturers. And that is just uploaded to our platform. And then it creates automatic renderings in the platform. And it'll give you exact model numbers, location, quantity, specification, everything. And next to each item, there'll be a few different buttons. And it's it's basically an intuitive inventory management system that supports the circular economy and it's connected to our marketplace. So let's say five years down the road after Oracle has placed their order with the manufacturers and the dealer, they get word that they're going to be relocating. They can go up on their on their platform, look at the dashboard and figure out what they want to keep, sell, donate, renew or reorder. So let's say you have, you know, they have 500 steel case leap chairs that are in purple and they're moving to the new building. These chairs are only five years old, but the new building is orange. They can look at that chair and get an instant price, what it would cost to just reupholster that chair and how much carbon they, they would be saving by doing that. Let's say they want to sell those chairs. We would get a notification saying that Oracle's interested in selling those chairs. We would then go out, just verify that everything still looks as it did and make any notes, important notes about anything that's broken or not working or damaged that we can't sell. And then once that's confirmed, it's automatically uploaded to the platform and you can specify the date that the furniture is available and the date the furniture needs to be out of the building. And it's priced at the per, mar per market value, which is 20 cents on the dollar. And that way, if you sell it while it's still standing, then you get a runway, you get a chance to actually look at that furniture, see if it works for a project. A&D can actually look at that inventory and see what might be able to plug into any of the projects that they're working on. Is the only way they can look at it to go physically visit the space? Or do you trust the imagery and things that they will see on the cloud? So that's a good question. They can see the images on the platform, but I personally recommend anybody who's buying pre-owned furniture to go and take a look at it before it's torn down. Because once it's torn down and put in a warehouse, you really don't get a good sense of the overall condition of the furniture. So if a company so, has a year to, to, you know, that they know they're going to be moving and they're not going to be bringing their furniture, why not take it, take that time and market it? Just letting people know when it's available and when it needs to be out of the building. So as a designer, I would make an appointment to go to Oracle and go look at the furniture with my dealer, I guess. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Do you, does, does the, the purchaser have to buy the entire lot or, or you guys break it down and do it in smaller orders as well? We can do yeah. it in smaller orders. Yeah. It's pretty much, it's pretty much dictated by the seller. But most sellers don't mind splitting up those sales as long as we're coordinating everything. It, you know, they don't, the bigger companies don't want to be involved, but we do give the option for the smaller companies to handle everything on their own 
and they would receive more of the profit. So instead of it being a 30-70 split, it would be a 70-30 split. So, you know, the other thing is I was thinking about all the crap I have in my garage. I know that I'm probably not the, the only one. I've got a pile in my garage of things I don't use anymore. Skis, shoes, bags, furniture. And it's still sitting there because in order for me to sell that stuff or get it into the hands of somebody that could use it, I need to physically go out there, pull it all out, measure it, find the manufacturer information, and then list it to the marketplace. But really, I'm thinking if the world really wants to go in the direction of a truly circular economy, I'm thinking that everything we buy should have a receipt ID. Because if I had receipt ID for all the stuff that's in my garage, and it was already up on a platform. What is the receipt ID? Yeah, that seems to be key to this whole process. Yeah, I keep hearing that. What's that receipt ID? It's essentially a second, if you could imagine a second life cycle passport. So it's a passport for everything you own, but, you know, and you have a plan for the second life of everything that you own. A passport is basically global identification. Like if I had to define passport, it's global identification. So is that what it is? Like an ID card? Exactly. Yep. Okay. If you know what, if it were up to me, we would only rent stuff. Nobody would ever own anything. The the manufacturer would be responsible for end of life disposition, whatever that looks like. All All right. right. That's a whole nother Oh, Is that another John. episode? Yeah, oh, let's, shit. Let's get I'm back just getting to, ready to go. Let's get oh, back to this man. Right. Okay. So what is key then is signing on manufacturers, those that make the furniture, and getting them to create an ID, or you call it a passport, for every piece of furniture so that it can be tracked and traced and inventoried properly. Now, right. how, what's the role of the designer in this process or architect? Well, designer and architects are really, they're, they're the leaders, basically. I mean, they're hired by the client and they are the ones that make the suggestions on what types of products to, to use. I think that- But could I, could I say, I only want to use furniture that has this passport? Like, like how would I try to, because I feel like- can't be there yet. I just feel like as designers, there's got to be some way that we can be more proactive up front so that we can plan for all of this furniture to go somewhere after that particular client is done with it. Why can't we do a better job of that? Here's an idea. You guys at your company, you write RFPs for for clients. Mm -hmm. For instance, we're working with a local dealer who, who just won a project, a really large project in the Bay Area. They were awarded this project because in the RFP response, they said that they would issue a second life cycle passport receipt ID to the furniture purchase. And so this dealer is going to be marketing it as the very first circular project. And Mm -hmm. I don't think it's too far fetched to think that by this time next year, it will be a requirement for companies to have receipt IDs. I mean, it makes complete sense. I don't know how companies are going to meet their net zero goals if they don't have a plan for the furniture, you know? All right. Yeah. So we could be proactively trying to get this into yeah. our into our, our plans, our specs, our 
all of that. You'd have stuff. to have a client that says, Verda, I I want to put pre-owned furniture in this space, right? Mm-hmm. The only problem with that, the only problem with that, again, I love the idea, but if you ask somebody, all right, we're going to do this project for you, but we're going to use all pre-owned furniture. They're going to be like, no, oh my God, because I'm going to take pictures of this space. I'm going to put it in magazines. I want people to have that holy crap moment when they walk in the door. What are you telling well, people about that? You, I mean, can we make pre-owned look? Can we make pre-owned look like it's not pre-owned? To. You know, a client doesn't have to do pre-owned. They just have to buy, they can buy new furniture that has this receipt ID. That's right. It doesn't yeah. have to be used furniture. So they because well, the receipt ID is used when you yeah. go to get rid of it, right? That's when the re- that's when yeah. that ID is valuable. Yeah, but there's a local, and I think you know her, Chris Kokofer. She's doing yeah. a local challenge to designers yeah. to to specify. Is it just ten percent of? I think it's twenty. Whole, it might 20, be 20 yeah, it's yeah. not a large percentage, but it's something. It's some percentage of a project's furniture mm-hmm. budget to be used. Yeah. And that's a good that's a good idea. way to to get started. Yeah. With that yeah, and system. it's it's absolutely a paradigm shift for sure. But I think that especially after COVID and what we've all been through, I honestly feel like there was the time before COVID and the time after COVID. Yeah. And I feel <laughs> like I mean, I'm working with so many end users right now that only want used furniture. And these are big companies. I mean, LinkedIn is one of them that's working through one workplace through us with the furniture solutions for one of their new buildings, and they don't want any new furniture. Wow. That's amazing. You know, will they, will they spend some time fixing it up? Like, will they maybe reupholster some of the chairs? I mean, I think it all gets refurbished, John. I don't think you come in with broken legs and scratched dust. Well, um, uh, well, okay. (laughs) I'm just making sure. I mean, it's think about, think about a vintage clothing store. Think about the real, real, right. They're reselling like designer Chanel bags and Louboutin shoes and stuff like that. And there's a huge market for it. So I think it's the same for, for, used furniture i think part of part of the the system has to include a refurbishment totally right yeah um, component brandy how do we how do we get the manufacturers on board with this right now we're having the biggest traction with end users and now the manufacturers and the dealers are kind of like oh well now we know what you know a receipt id is and we need to get on board so, yeah, if I'm an end user and I'm thinking about buying previously owned, f- gently used as the car salesmen like to call them, mm-hmm. um, what is the, what is, how much money will I expect to save? Oh, you're going to save at least 50%. Oh, that's an incentive. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's an incentive for the end user. And going sure. back to that story that I've started with and why things shifted to a more disposable office furniture culture is when we started companies they didn't want to spend a big chunk of their their best vc dollars on furniture they wanted to spend it on operations and on people and yeah. somewhere along the line i think maybe during the dot-com boom when this so much money was flowing in that it didn't matter that's when i think right. things shifted and you no know, and we just haven't gone back hopefully until now <laughs> so i have a thought about that berta oh yeah 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 
So I, I do have several friends that, you know, are in the used office furniture industry. And they said that about 20 years ago is when they really saw their business decline. Mm. My argument for it is the only reason why it declined is because they couldn't find it used online to buy, to add to a cart, check out and get delivery and installation Hmm. because none of these sites have that. And the number 10 thing that people search for on Google that's used is buy and sell used office furniture. Well, if I don't have a place to go to that I, that I'm not familiar with, I'm going to say F it and just go to Wayfair and buy the stuff that I know is going to be here in two weeks. I mean, right. You know what I that mean? Was made in China. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Right. We presented at Neocon for the very first time as exhibitors and we won Mm -hmm. the sustainability award in integrated technology solutions. Thank you. That was on our very first birthday. And then I think I told you just a couple of weeks ago, we got a call from Fast Company who included us in the 50 most innovative companies in the world for 2022, which Mm -hmm. is mind blowing to me. It's absolutely Mm -hmm. mind blowing. Sounds like your sounds like your interest is solving a prickly problem and in a in an innovative and creative way. If the if we can do it with technology, why hasn't it been done yet? Yeah, you know, and and it's a huge problem. It's an industry that operates at enormous scale, and we don't have a solution for this. Yeah. yeah. So, it's an industry that that's driven by fashion and by trends and totally. things that have to evolve and iterate and change and get better and be- and, and so you're you know you're definitely going pardon the pun but you're going cross grain here, right? Mm-hmm. Which makes it more challenging. I'm curious what what was the biggest challenge for you that you did not see coming? I think it's funny there's there's several, but The first one I would say is your terms and conditions have to be really clear because there have been many situations where a client will tell me a certain amount of chairs are available for sale and I go and I sell them and then they say, oh, well, you know, 10 of these employees took those chairs home. Well, you know, I'm out here marketing your furniture, so you you owe me ten chairs now. So yeah, right. So would have been good to know that. Yeah, yeah. So like terms and conditions, and then and then re- the real kind of epiphany that I found while doing this was not just providing a marketplace for people to buy and sell, but also to start thinking about it at the very time of purchase. And I think that's really key we have to get the manufacturer really involved in something like this because I, I'm going to tell you a little story. So this weekend I'm hanging out at my sister-in-law's and she's got this entertainment center from the eighties. And I mean, it's from the, it's from the eighties. And she's like, Hey, you know, anybody who wants that? And my immediate thought was absolutely not. <laughs> Nobody wants an entertainment center from the eighties. Unless it's somebody who's creating a 1980s interior, and then it's perfect, right? right? <laughs> or maybe you're renting furniture for a movie set. I don't know. But 
I said to her, I said, well, you know, good luck finding somebody to take that. First of all, you're not going to make, you think you're going to sell it. You're not going to sell it. You're lucky if you don't have to pay somebody to come and pick the damn thing up. And she said, well, you know, it comes apart pretty easy. I think, I think four pieces, but now that I'm talking to you, I can see more screws. I didn't know were there. I don't know. The problem is that manufacturers don't make it easy for us to do the right thing a lot of times. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's it's true. not easy to take stuff apart. It's not easy to service stuff. It's not easy to refurbish stuff. I always tell the story about, and I think this is the challenge is manufacturing. It makes it more work for manufacturers, right. To have to, to plan this. But in California, we have one of the few laws where you have to recycle a certain percentage. I believe it's 25% of carpet and carpet company interface actually lobbied for it going yeah. against their, their, their carpet association, but they felt so strongly and passionately about it in terms of how it was affecting the environment that they lobbied heavily for it in California, but it's still the only state that requires it. And so it's just, it's slow. Go- legislation is what you really need, but it's slow going. So in the meantime, we need to convince designers, architects, manufacturers, end users. And then it's just phenomenal that you, that you've created the platform to make it all work. Yeah. 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 A model to make it easy. Yeah. I think that, you know, I think if you make it easy for A&D, they'll use it. The biggest thing I think for A&D is you can't just tell them the chair's red. That's why we're capturing all the information at once. They, we know that designers in A&D, they want to be able to pull the memo f- sample and see what that is exactly. And then also, that's why I you know, developed the renew option, because I feel like designers would be really open to using already existing products, but they probably want to put their own spin on it with finishes. You know, so, but you're still doing, you know, it's so much better than buying brand new. So, so I think, I think we're going to get there. I really do. We, it's just, it's unbelievable how much momentum we've gotten just in we're, such a short amount of time. Yeah. Hopefully you'll get more recognition. We'll see, you and know, full yeah. steam ahead. Very excited. Is there a you? perfect, is there a perfect world that exists in your head, Brandy, that you think about where, oh my God, if only we had this what I'm trying to do, it just happen. Is there, is there, what do we need? A QR code on everything? I mean, what is it? Well, yeah, I mean, you definitely need a QR code. I'm thinking I would love to see the world one day have this concept issued to everything we buy, you know, these, this, Everything that we own. Could you imagine if we had a platform of everything we owned and I could just go through it and go, I don't use those skis anymore. I don't use those books anymore. And just automatically yeah. list it. Oh my God. It's like like a massive library of yeah. all your shit. And you can get it into the hands that well, you know, people yeah. that really need it and, and want it instead of just sitting there. That, that's brilliant. I'm, you know, I'm not the smartest. Yeah. I'm not the fastest. I didn't graduate high school. I was a teenage mother, but my grandmother gave me a plaque. It's the poem, The Person Who Thinks They Can. And it's basically a poem talking about it's not the fastest or the strongest person that wins the race sometimes. Sometimes it's the person that just thinks they can. And I'm definitely totally determined to make this happen. 
If you've enjoyed today's episode, drop us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. To hear more trailblazers taking on the world's issues through the lens of design, visit us at breaksomedishes.com. I'm Verda Alexander. And I'm John Strasner. And you've been listening to Break Some Dishes.